menu and hours online at tavernonmainny.com. And from listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Okay, here we are. It's the local edition. I'm Jason Dole. This is live radio. I'm glad you're joining us tonight. We have an unbelievable conversation um, coming up from the New York Civil Liberties Union, checking in with them, their Hudson Valley chapter, following the election, talking about some New York state politics and issues on the ground and uh, what the year has been for them, what the year is ahead uh, and then we we have another great New York State conversation to start us off uh, following a report that was released recently. As people gather for Thanksgiving this week, some New Yorkers will be struggling with food insecurity as they do even when it's not Thanksgiving. They'll have less to celebrate, face more hunger and uncertainty. Recently, New York Health Foundation and Why Health released findings that outline what are the barriers to healthy eating and that, quote, New Yorkers in rural areas experience worse health than their suburban and urban peers, end quote. New York Health Foundation's private statewide foundation aims to improve the health of all New Yorkers. And here to tell us more about their study is Senior Program Officer for the New York State Health Foundation, Julia McCarthy. Welcome to the program, Julia. Thanks. Happy to be here. So the study, um, it, it states, as we said, the food insecure New Yorkers in rural areas experience worse health than their suburban and urban peers. Um, and so why is that? Um, well, I want to just start by saying that, you know, food insecurity, what you know we all call hunger, is a problem across all New York state. So it's, it's prevalent and it's persistent and it's pricey. Um, and across the board, you know, the cost of food and transportation are real barriers for, for all New Yorkers to get the food that they need for their families. But like you said, there are real notable differences in the degree of difficulty depending on where you live. You know, it really matters. And so, um, you know, just to, to go over the stats again quickly, New Yorkers living in greater in rural areas are at greater risk. Um, just 2% of these people um, report being in excellent health. And, you know, rural food insecure rural residents are both more likely to have a chronic illness and less likely to get the care that they need. Um, when we surveyed New Yorkers, uh, individuals who are living in rural areas said that they were much more likely to delay or forego medical compare, care compared with their suburban and urban peers. And, you know, one of the reasons I think that we, we know that this happens is frankly because um, affordability is a huge problem and that the poverty yeah. rates in rural areas are much higher. And and that would have been my guess, too. If you tell me people are delaying going to the hospital, that's the that's what I would have assumed. But it's good to hear you back that up with information. Yeah. Another thing I would add is that, you know, there are public benefit programs that are available and designed specifically to reduce hunger. Um, these are programs like the special uh Nutrition Assistance Program or SNAP, sorry, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and WIC. And yet we see um, that rates in suburban and rural areas 
are actually lower than they are in urban areas for uh, people to participate. And when we asked, you know, rural residents why they don't participate in these programs, many people told us that they were just frankly embarrassed. And so stigma is another big problem. You know, these these programs are designed to help lift people out of poverty and make it just a little bit easier to eat and to eat healthily. And yet, um, you know, there is a very real fear among rural individuals that their neighbors will find out or that it could affect, um, you know, their ability to f- to feed their kids going forward, which is which is the the opposite of what you would hope. Yeah, and I mean it's 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 also the opposite of other realities that we actually see here, and I think that's part of why it might be counterintuitive because you know when when people are in need, especially when there's like a crisis or a marked need um, in small communities where people know each other, people step up to help each other. But that uh, it sounds like what you're talking about there is, is a also part of what it is like to live in small communities where people know each other. There's there's even more fear of stigma. Uh, uh, and both of those things can be true, even though they lead to contradictory uh, outcomes. Yeah, one, one finding that was quite surprising, actually, when c- comparing urban and rural um, individuals was that actually urban individuals were more likely to find that it was difficult to get transportation though, you know, supermarkets may be closer to them. Um, but I want to say that across the board, transportation was a major issue for all New Yorkers. And so, you know, four out of every 10 food insecure individuals say that they travel more than 20 minutes each way to shop for food. You know, that's an extra 40 minutes. That's not even in the grocery store. And something that was surprising that we found was that actually 40% of rural and suburban food insecure individuals um, don't use their own car when food shopping, and 20% walk or bike. And you think about the distances that people have to travel in rural areas, and, you know, that's a huge burden on people. And we now know that that's a much bigger number than we expected it to be. But th- that's surprising to me to hear that, that that transportation is, I mean, I've been living up here my whole life and working in nonprofits, you know, for, for decades now up here. And transportation is one of the biggest things that, that we face, one of the biggest obstacles uh, up here. We have lots of space, few people. It's tough to get around uh, without your own vehicle, which brings so many costs. So you figure down the city, there's mass transportation um, but, but what you're, you're saying is even they face difficulty in transporting to where the food is. That's right. Or getting to the kinds of shops that provide, you know, the, the quality of food or the kinds of food that people want to buy. And I will say that, you know, lacking reliable access to transportation really can impact the kinds of foods that people buy. So, you know, fruits and vegetables are very heavy. They're often too heavy to carry on public transportation oh. or when walking or biking. And so, yeah. People may instead choose to buy box items that they can more easily carry. Um, You know, also without reliable access to a car, people are likely limiting the number of trips they make to the grocery store and choosing self uh, shelf stable packaged items. And and as you know, you know, shelf stable foods are typically higher in salt, higher in added sugar and higher in fat. And they're really just not the kinds of foods that your doctor or a dietitian would, you know, be promoting in your diet. Yeah. You know, I I mean, we did start off uh, on our end asking about, you know, the rural end of this because that's where we are and that's our focus. But as you pointed out right in the beginning, the report 
really is. And I thought, I think this is what's interesting about it is looking at those three different levels, um, that it's urban, suburban, and rural. Uh, and it is important for everybody to, to know what challenges others are facing. Uh, it's important for us too in this rural area. Often, uh, we get overlooked depending what kind of geography your rural area is just because there's less population density. Sometimes it's harder to get, uh, better response and recognition from Everybody from uh, representatives in government to um, major media outlets, you know, they over lower population density areas get overlooked. So that's why it was a big deal for us to see in this report that that you're looking at what some of the distinctions are for these different population density areas. And you're exactly right. And I think one thing that I didn't mention earlier that I really want to highlight is that um, urban individuals actually said it was easy to easier to shop generally afford the food and get the services they need to address food insecurity. And that was not true for suburban or rural individuals. And one of the reasons we think that is, is because there just aren't services and nonprofits um, concentrated in the same density in rural areas, right? And in suburban areas, the way they are in urban areas. And so, you know, not only, like we said at the beginning, are you know, rural health outcomes related to food food insecurity worse. But frankly, we know that they have, you know, less resources to address those problems in, 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 in the areas where they live. The report uh, also makes recommendations. Um, and uh, New York State <clears throat> Health Foundation is making policy recommendations in light of the information in this report. And as for transportation that we were just talking about, one of those recommendations is working with federal partners to cover online grocery delivery costs. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So New York State was actually the first state in the nation to pilot online SNAP benefits or food stamp benefits. And during covid um, all 50 states were put put that program into place, but currently um, the cost of delivery is prohibitive for people, and and the program doesn't actually cover the cost of delivery. And we know that it, um, you know, both from a transportation perspective and com- from a time and convenience perspective, um, covering the cost of delivery could make a real difference in people's lives, especially in rural areas where those services aren't yet. Um, often available. And so um, New York State um, could work with the United States Department of Agriculture um, to try and figure out this problem and make sure that, you know, in addition, grocery costs are waived. Some retailers across the country have waived the delivery fees, and we would like to see that just be, um, you know, across the board part of the program. And in the last couple of minutes, can we talk quick about another recommendation you made, which was um, to make universal school meals permanent? How would that work? Sure. So, you know, another change that came during COVID was that the federal government made school meals free for all students across the country. And um, that was a policy proposal that, um, you know, we would like to see made permanent. Basically, in September the federal waivers that allowed free meals for all ended. And so more than 700,000 kids lost access to free meals. And, you know, we think New York state should continue to push the federal government to extend universal school meals. But if the federal government doesn't act, New York state can, you know, California, Maine, Massachusetts, Colorado, Nevada have all continued to provide free meals to students this year. And, um, you know, 
over 85% of all New Yorkers think that the state should cover the cost of free school meals. And I will say that many urban schools already take advantage of a federal policy that enables schools to provide free meals for all, um, meaning that actually statewide universal free meals would most benefit rural and suburban areas where participation has historically been lower and it's lower, like we talked about before, because of stigma. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We do have to move on. This is a great conversation and uh, want to rejoin it again sometime. We've been talking to Senior Program Officer for New York State Health Foundation, Julia McCarthy. The website where the report actually is available is nyhealthfoundation.org. Once again, Julia McCarthy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Bye. Okay, and up next, uh, this is the local edition. The New York Civil Liberties Union, NYCLU, is one of the nation's defenders of civil liberties and civil rights. I've been eager to check in with them again, find out how their year has gone, get some reactions to this most recent election, and maybe chat about the outlook for next year. And to help with that, we have Hudson Valley Regional Director for the New York Civil Liberties Union on the phone right now. It's Brandon Holmes. Brandon, welcome back to the program. Hey, good to chat with you again. I'm looking forward to it. So, um, so first off, as I said, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the most recent election. Uh, you know, some seats in our area have flipped. Were you paying attention to these races going into it? And what's your reaction to how it all went? Yeah, of course, uh, our office is paying attention. I think, you know, here in the Hudson Valley, um, redistricting was a huge conversation and it presented a lot of challenges last session um, with a lot of senators and assembly members saying, you know, I'm not sure what my new district is going to look like, right? We went through a couple rounds of the drafts of those new maps and folks were concerned at what their new constituency uh, would be and how that would uh, be impacted or their re-election would be impacted by the decisions they were making uh, when it came down to policy last session. So we were in an uphill battle last session and we were kind of facing a lot of uncertainty. Um, and then, you know, there were also new candidates. There were new, uh, you know, first time folks running for office, um, such as Sarah Hanna, that represents me now here in Kingston. Um, and there were folks that were exciting and kind of bringing a new energy to the state legislature. I think that now when we look at it, you know, we've got the assembly, the Senate uh, is Republican. We're going to be looking at the same challenges we've had over recent years. Um, as a nonpartisan organization, we are ready to work and to build community power uh, and, you know, be able to move constituencies to move their representatives, regardless of whether they're Democrat or Republican. Um, but we're hopeful that, you know, with our governor, uh, Kathy Hochul, um, we're hopeful that the conversations of bail reform and further rollbacks to that and all of the fear-mongering around criminal justice reform that were beaten back last session. We're hopeful that the Assembly leadership and that the governor um, and leaders in the Democratic Party and the Senate are going to be able to continue to beat that back as our communities, the people who are here organizing these campaigns, the advocates who are leading this work, and the communities who are impacted by these policies, we haven't changed. We weren't up for any elections. We, you know, our values weren't in question because of the neighborhood that we live in or represent. Uh, we are here and we are firmly committed in continuing to fight for justice. You know, I think people often talk about New York State as a beacon of progressivism for the country and possibly even the world. Um, but, you know, 
we don't believe that that is just by default the case, that we can't just rest on the laurels of being a progressive state or being a blue state. I think these recent election results have shown that uh, nationwide. I think that what we're doing, you know, as we're fighting for, you know, protecting people's access to civil rights and civil liberties under the Constitution, what we need to do is more public education around that redistricting process and what it meant, why it happened how people's representatives have changed. A lot of that was on uh, nonprofit organizations and community-based organizations. A lot of that work was not happening coming from the state. A lot of that outreach and kind of that public education around the redistricting process and who folks should be, you know, looking for on their ballot wasn't really being shared with folks. That voter education kind of was pushed to the wayside as these maps were negotiated and deliberated about, and we saw multiple drafts of them. I think a lot of folks were confused, even myself. I was confused about how, uh, you know, two representatives uh, in the Hudson Valley in Ulster County, they actually got moved. Michelle Hinchy and Sue Serino got put into the same seat and kind of thinking, oh, well, how did that work? Both of them are incumbent elected. Now they're both running for the same seat. Um, you know, kind of what is going to be the dynamic of this election and does the community really know, you know, what's at stake here um, when they see those names on the ballot and one of, you know, both of them are talking about, you know, yes, this is, you know, I'm an incumbent, this is a district that has been remapped to me, but I, you know, have been doing this job for years. Um, it's kind of just interesting to see the same rhetoric coming from candidates on different sides of the aisle and community members kind of, you know, coming to us and speaking to me and, you know, one-on-one conversations asking, you know, is my senator, is my assembly member still the same person? Um, and then also, you know, kind of in smaller towns, right, where the, some places uh, people are just questioning, like, well, I, I don't know if this is going to impact my Congress member. The answer is yes. Everyone was impacted. So you nearly need to do your research. And I think during midterm elections, that's always a challenge when voter turnout is lower, when voter registrations are lower, um, and people are just not paying as close attention as they would. Um, this really was a challenge that I think, you know, a lot of advocates stepped up to the plate and were able to make sure that campaigns were supported and that local communities were supported to have access to that education. But I think the state could have done a better job at supporting that public education effort. And in terms of the issues on the ballot, or at least in the campaigns, you mentioned crime. We heard a lot about crime in New York State. I feel like crime and probably abortion, at least in terms of advertising, was what I heard the most about as a constituent, as somebody who votes in New York State. Uh, and the focal point of the crime issue seems to be bail reform. That's been a major issue. It's been a major talking point. Um, and frankly, like, like I think you were saying that you, you hope that, uh, that officials in the state and Democrats in the state will continue to, to push back on some of this pushback on crime. And I think that bail reform might be part of that. Uh, but I feel like I haven't, I've only been hearing one side. I've been hearing an awful lot about how the bail reform is horrible and has led to rampant crime. And I don't feel like I'm hearing a lot of response to that. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, the challenge is the way that um, people who are spreading, you know, who are doing fear mongering um, and people who are spreading this myth, around, you know, crime is increasing because of bail reform, gun violence is increasing because of bail reform. The challenge is that these are blatant lies, right? And in pushing back against those blatant lies, um, you know, what we're doing is we're pointing to data, we're pointing to research, and also we're pointing to the actual language of the law, 
of the bail statute, uh, which did not change anything around gun charges, right, or around gun possession. So when we hear that, you know, gun violence is increasing, well, uh, that is actually not an eligible charge. That is not one of the charges that is no longer eligible um, for pretrial detention or for bail to be set. So the things that we're hearing, the fear-mongering that's coming from the DA's Association of New York or from different sheriffs throughout the state or, you know, more conservative folks, we're hearing these things that just don't add up. And I think one of the challenges in this year was that people were uncertain of, you know, this really is coming, you know, kind of in this strange in-between of a post-pandemic world, but not really post because we're about to enter winter and we'll see what happens to the COVID rate. People are seeing that crime, you know, uh, is increasing right now and not really connecting that to the true public health and public safety concerns that they should be, right? The investment into getting people back into the workforce, the investment into public infrastructure and kind of, uh, you know, making sure that people that we're talking about the housing crisis um, and how many of our neighbors are homeless right now, not really looking at that, right? But just focusing on crime is going up because of bail reform. When that is not the case and when we see uh, trends around, you know, uh, drug use and not really having harm reduction services available. When we see that the mental health folks who need mental health supports and services such as uh, short-term or long-term transitional housing supports are not getting access to those things and they're being gutted by the state budget, we're not really looking at the real reasons why crime may be increasing in different areas. And then also them pointing to bail reform when bail is simply the legislation is simply saying that Judges do not have the discretion to set bail on these ineligible charges. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. And there wasn't really, you know, in the uniform effort, I think, from within the state or within the governor's office to push back against that and kind of set the record straight. But one example that I always like to point people to um, when we really do bring those facts and we bring the real stories from people who are directly impacted in our communities, uh, you know, New York City Mayor Eric Adams was doing his whole tour up to speak to assembly and Senate leadership. And Carl Hastings uh, and Andrew Stewart cousin sent him back to New York City with his tail tucked just by simply saying, show us the data gun violence and show us how this is connected to this bail statute. Because we passed this law and we're looking at it. We're reading it word for word. Did you even read this law? Because it has nothing to do with gun possession or gun charges. And the mayor went back and we didn't hear another peep from him, right? And that is arguably the most powerful mayor in the state of New York was sent back with his tail tucked because he was spreading the same lies that sheriffs and district attorneys were across the state. We need a governor and we need assembly leadership and we're going to need some strong leadership in the Senate that are going to push back against those lies and speak to the facts and the real stories of what's happening when people get access to mental health treatment, when they get access to harm reduction services, and when they get access to housing in our you know, current economy. Uh, we've been talking for a while, and I've missed a couple of the questions that I wanted to ask, such as how was the past year from the NYCLU's perspective, and what are the issues in the Hudson Valley that you're focusing on? I think you've brought up a number of those issues, but are, what are some of the issues that, that you're going to be looking on that you've been working on this past year that are affecting people right now that maybe we didn't mention so far in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really excited. I think this is actually the first time that any you know news outlet will be able to report uh, that we are building out our housing advocacy uh, team. So we have a housing justice policy associate who is going to be doing a lot of work around looking at, um, you know, the way 
landlords are treating folks throughout the state, looking at rents throughout the state and increasing rent, uh, looking at, you know, homelessness and how we can kind of address that and make sure that people know that housing should also be a human and civil right in this country, um, and that we need to protect people who don't have access to housing or create opportunities for them. Um, really, at, at the root of so much of the conversation that we're talking about, having a roof over your head, right, and a place where your family can feel safe, that is so important in all of the issues we're talking about. We're also making sure that regardless of what the Supreme Court may do or whatever, you know, other bodies throughout the country may do, we are protecting abortion access um, and we're protecting people who are trans or gender nonconforming through our, our state constitution and making sure that the New York state constitution is updated and amended uh, to reflect those priorities, regardless of what happens if the United States constitution is reinterpreted or gutted uh, to make those folks vulnerable. And then we're also doing a lot of work around police accountability and oversight. We've got some uh, FOIA requests after the passage of 50A, which repealed the, the kind of veil on um, police uh, discipline records throughout the state. We've done a sweeping uh, FOIA request throughout the state in dozens of cities across the state, um, including the state police, where we are, uh, you know, evaluating that and reviewing that. We're going to be releasing some reports so that people can know what has been the legacy and the history of policing in your communities um, and support advocates who are on the ground talking about ways to transform and reform uh, and improve oversight and transparency within police departments throughout the state. And then we're doing a lot of work around, as I said, the Communities Not Cages Coalition, that sentencing reform, and, you know, recognizing that over the past 50 years, New York State's laws have resulted in increasingly harsh sentences, predominantly for black, brown, and low-income New Yorkers, and looking at opportunities for judges to be able to review and reconsider individual cases, um, also looking to eliminate mandatory minimums because those minimum sentences and those laws around them just drive mass incarceration and don't give judges discretion to actually evaluate the whole you know, case and the circumstances of the offense. Um, it's just an arbitrary number that was set in a tough on crime era, and we need to get out of that so that New York can start to undo some of those racist and oppressive harms. Um, and then the last piece of that coalition is the Earned Time Act. So, you know, we've seen research over years, decades, that longer prison sentences uh, increase rather than reduce recidivism. The longer you spend incarcerated, the more likely you are to return to incarceration. And New York has to shift its focus to rehabilitation and away from warehousing people in prisons. So we want to make sure that, you know, for the programs for good time and merit time programs that support personal transformation, um, such as the Bard Prison Initiative, where someone can get their associate's or their master's degree while they were incarcerated. We want to make sure that people are being rewarded with good time credits and getting earned time off of their sentences to get them home to their communities faster so that all the work they've done and they put into becoming a better neighbor can actually be honored and acknowledged by the system so that yeah. they can return home and be able to use those skills sooner. I'm wondering, as we close here, uh, what is it that you want the folks, just regular folks listening to know? Is there anything that you want them to know about the work that you're doing or any of these causes that we've talked about? What do you want people thinking about here? Yes, I, I want folks to know. And, you know, I think a lot of people who've been engaged and paying attention have seen the writing on the walls. Uh, there is a huge shift in our, not just in our state, but in our country, there's a huge shift in how we move power. 
Um, and I think a lot of that starts in our communities. So if people want to volunteer, if people want to come out and get educated and start to join lobby visits with legislators and be able to speak to your representatives with us um, and supported by our team to know, you know, you can go in as the experts from your community and have these conversations directly with them face to face um, so that we can move power even quicker than even than ever before. I think those are opportunities we're always trying to create in our office. If folks want to reach out, you can find us at NYCLU. Dot org, and you can see our regional offices. We've got seven regional offices throughout the state, and you'll be able to find contact information for each of them through that website, nyclu.org. I was just going to say the same thing. The New York Civil Liberties Union website is nyclu.org. We've been having a fantastic conversation with Hudson Valley Regional Director of the New York Civil Liberties Union, Brandon Holmes. Brandon, thank you for taking the time to run this all down for us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you. Well, that's going to do it for the local edition tonight. Music Emporium is coming up next with Kusar Grace. We will be back tomorrow with more local edition news and information that keeps you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. Oh, I should mention that that interview that you just heard with Brandon Holmes, amazing conversation. We recorded it earlier, uh, and there's at least eight more minutes to that conversation than you heard there. This was an edited version of it. Go to WJFFradio.org. It's WJFFradio.org. Look for NYCLU in the sidebar to get the whole uh, uninterrupted version of that interview if you're looking for more of that interview. Uh, again, uh, Music Emporium is coming up next. going to be cold tonight, clear and cold overnight, low down to 25, sunny tomorrow with a high of 43, and tomorrow night, mostly clear, overnight low, 23. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Liza Phillips Design. Sustainably sourced natural fiber rugs for floors and stairs. Designed in Narrowsburg, handmade in Nepal. By appointment and on the web at lizaphillipsdesign.com. From the Arnold House, up on top of Chandelier, featuring 14 guest rooms, a seasonally rotating menu at the tavern, greenhouse gardens, barn, and more. TheArnoldHouse.com.